0: Hi and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan and join me as we step into The Shape of Water and World of Tomorrow Episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts, in today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my That is right, a rare double review episode today, in today's episode, which uh, is a little strange. It is a Wednesday episode, so I try to make the uh, episode proper not be too long, because um, you know there's going to be the FML update at the end, but I, I just gotta, I know I have to do a review episode for The Shape of Water, and I need to do that, I want to do that, and I thi- I figured since I probably wasn't going to do any spoilers for it... I also wanted to talk about World of Tomorrow episode two, which also could even deserve its own episode by itself. But I am electing to uh, kind of short circuit that review as well, and kind of just uh, condense them down into one one little neat and tidy thing. So uh, yeah, if you, I mean, I'm going to do the Shape of the Water, Shape of Water episode uh, review first. So. I assume more people will have seen that than World of Tomorrow Episode 2. So that will uh, that will take precedent. So, like I said, no spoilers. The review for The Shape of Water. It is the newest film from Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro, who has made such wonderful films as Pan's Labyrinth, and Hellboy, and Crimson Peak... Pacific Rim, Blade Two, Kronos, Hellboy Two, The Devil's Backbone, Mimic. He's got a very, very strong filmography. Uh, this film is getting a lot of awards buzz for Del Toro himself, for the film, for the actors, for the production design, the effects, everything. Uh, a lot of people are saying this will be the nomination leader come uh, nomination morning, and. I I can't really argue against that, it's got a lot of good things, and if that does turn out to be true, I will not be upset, because I like this movie quite a bit. Um, I love Pan's Labyrinth, it is heads above all of Del Toro's other work, including Shape of Water for me. I think Pan's Labyrinth is the best thing he's done, I've seen most of his films, um, and uh, Shape of Water is the first film outside of Pan's Labyrinth that I feel really contends with Pan's Labyrinth on any level. And I think the strength of that is twofold. I think it is the elegance in the storytelling, and I think it is the power in the performances, particularly Sally Hawkins. She is phenomenal in this. I am so happy that she finally got like a really strong, meaty, lead role that she could uh flex her muscles in uh she was in maudie earlier this year which she was also fantastic in and you know blue jasmine she she's just been really great and uh you know i really hope she gets in for best actress and i would not be disappointed if she won not in the least uh but you know there's not just her Uh, The cast is rounded out by fantastically with Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Michael Stuhlbarg, Octavia Spencer, and uh, Doug Jones, playing the amphibian, uh, amphibious man in this movie. And they're all equally strong. You know, I had a really tough, like, I, I still don't know that I could really answer who my favorite supporting actor was in this movie. I would probably lean towards Richard Jenkins if I had to, you know, gun to my head, pick one, but they're all very, very, very good, and I think that there's a good chance one of them will show up in the Best Supporting Actor or Actress category come Oscar season. I think it's more likely to get Shannon or Jenkins in there than, say, Spencer or Stolbarg, but, um, you know, all of them have been getting praise and buzz and and have had such great things said about them. The film is beautiful. It opens on this fantastic opening credits sequence that is entirely underwater, and the film uh, just proceeds to lay out these incredibly three-dimensional characters, not just Sally Hawkins, but Shannon, Jenkins, Stuhlbark, Spencer, even uh, the creature. They're all very layered and multifaceted. The story is very simple in its premise, but very complex in its execution uh, to, benef- to its benefit. There is, there are sensual and sensuous scenes in this movie that are among the most uh, sensual that I've ever seen in any movie, uh, which is a testament to the skill of del Toro, and not just Del Toro, but Sally Hawkins uh, in her performance in getting us to be- buy and believe that she is in fact in love and uh, wants to spend all of her time with uh, Doug Jones's uh, amphibious man, and she pulls it off flawlessly. As far as I'm concerned, I think that there have not been any better, you know, romantic scenes. Romantic, like lovemaking esque scenes in any movie this year, bar none, that I've seen. Uh, I'm I'm really impressed by that, and the movie just as a whole just it 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 comes across so fantastical, even in the moments where, uh, even even in the moments that are that are very kind of down to earth and real. Uh, you know, Del Toro just gives them a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a twist, and suddenly they have this energy, this life, this spark about them, when, whether it's Hawkins and Jenkins simply sitting on the couch and, and dancing with their feet, or it's um, uh, Sally Hawkins leaning against the window of, her, uh, of the bus as she's on her way to work. It is just immaculately conceived, and the film is incredibly enjoyable, it is a lot of fun, and I think, for me, it is a very feel-good, uh, uh, just, just buoyant film. Now, I do have a, a few quibbles, uh, because it doesn't quite break into the best of the best this year for me as a whole. You know, it, it does fall a tiny bit short, um, And my main quibble is that there are a lot of scenes in this movie that I think are intended to help flesh out some of the secondary characters. Uh, You know, like Stuhlbarg, Shannon, um, Jenkins, and Spencer. And some of them work really well. Uh, There's a scene with Richard Jenkins uh, at a diner that he goes to. Uh, without any of the other supporting cast or, or main characters, and he—that is a fantastic scene for his character and for the way he comes to sort of understand and, and recognize what he's, who he is, and, and sort of reconcile that. Uh, you know, Stulberg has a lot of scenes uh, separate from the rest of the main cast, and most of those I think are well worked and 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 uh, pertinently placed you know, he it's a secondary line through line for the main driving energy of this film and it helps add this additional wrinkle that I don't know that was necessary to the film but having, you know, watched it the way that it is, I'm perfectly pleased with the way that that Stolberg side of the story turns out. Uh for me though, There are a couple of, like, Michael Shannon scenes that didn't quite work for me. Uh, And they're not only scenes that he's the only character in. You know, we see a couple of scenes with him at home, with his family. Uh, You know, Michael Shannon is perhaps the least three-dimensional character of the main roster. Um, And that's really of no fault of his own. You know, he is the villain of the movie. He is relatively sadistic The most dimension we get uh, from him, as far as I'm concerned, is his reliability uh, is thrown into question after certain events have transpired, and uh, we get, you know, we see, you know, we see a couple of times with him at home with his family, and he's, you know, I guess relatively normal at home, as far as we can tell. You know, we don't see a ton of it there, but he, we know he's the villain from, you know, the first scene you see him in. And he's doing nothing villainous in that moment, you know. And then, like, the second and third times we see him when he's interacting with the creature, he is clearly the villain of this movie. Uh, And then, about halfway through the movie, we are still getting those scenes that, in my mind, you put in the movie to say, now, look, this is the villain. And we already know it. It felt, felt a little... Too overemphasized. Um, there is, you know, particularly there is a scene between Shannon and Hawkins that I didn't particularly need. Uh, there's, you know, I think this movie could have been served better by allotting more time to the relationship between Hawkins, uh, Sally Hawkins, who plays Eliza in the movie, uh, Eliza and uh, the creature. The amphibious man. You know, I wanted more moments from them. You know, I wanted to see their burgeoning relationship fleshed out a little bit more. You know, it goes from like zero to a hundred relatively quickly. And you can see that connection from Sally Hawkins' point of view. But I don't think we get enough of it from the other side. You know, I don't understand what the amphibious man gets. I, I I don't I don't know it just it all felt like it moved a little too fast like one or two more scenes between the two of them uh, would have would have really done a lot of good for me. So it doesn't it's not perfect, very few films can be, but it is quite a good 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 film great film even. So I ended up giving this movie an eighty nine which. Uh, puts it in my, currently, puts it in my top 10 of the year. So, uh, there is a chance it falls out. Not a great chance, given how late we are in the year, but a small chance. Uh, It also makes a splash into my Circle of Film Award nominations. So, currently, and this may change, uh, you know, I have Sally Hawkins getting in for female lead. Uh, I have Del Toro getting in for screenplay. Uh, and I think he is Del Toro, not just Del Toro, but he had a co-writer with him who is Vanessa Taylor. So Vanessa Taylor also getting in for screenplay. Uh, the film gets in for score, which a fantastic score. And uh, the film gets in for tactile effects, uh, which translates into costume, makeup, production, and sound. Um, so it has four nominations right now. That can change the further, you know, I learn more about the movie, the techniques behind it, the performances. I, you know, reconsider some people. Uh, still in flux. A lot of fluctuation happening. So definitely the opportunity for this film to to improve upon itself even, even more so. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really, I think you should go see it. If the idea of love between a human and a non-human, it puts you off. Obviously, I don't think you'd like this movie, but if you can ignore that, then you will probably like what you see. And I liked what I saw very, very much. So that's my thoughts on The Shape of Water. Brief review everything about this episode is going to be brief. I'm still still kind of recovering from, from being sick, so trying to not talk too much uh, and kind of get things out as concise as possible. So, uh, moving on to From the Shape of Water, I also want to review uh, a little movie that came out uh, on demand less than a week ago, which is World of Tomorrow Episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. Now, if if the name title of this movie doesn't bring to mind anything for you, then uh, I, I urge you to to seek out the first movie, World of Tomorrow, as well as anything else you can find by Don Hertzfeld. So, uh, Don Hertzfeld is an animator. He's a two-time Academy Award nominate, nominee. Uh, for the original World of Tomorrow, and for the short animated film Rejected. Uh, Both were nominated for Best Animated Short uh, in 2001 and 2015. Neither won, which is a shame, particularly for World of Tomorrow, which I think was entirely snubbed. Uh, But he has done many things, uh, including uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is a three-part feature-length movie, Uh, and many other very strange and uh, odd animation films. He has a particular style, and if if you like that style, you'll, you'll really enjoy, I think, all of the things he's done. Uh, brief background, First World of Tomorrow uh, is still on Netflix right now. So free access to everybody who has Netflix, which is pretty much everybody. And the premise of the movie is this little girl named Emily is visited by the clone of her future self, an adult version of Emily. And this adult version of Emily has re- has traveled back in time to Emily Prime, as they call her, in order to ultimately uh, extract a particular memory from Emily Prime's brain. Uh, however, in the process of doing so, we take a brief 16-minute trip through the exploration of the future and into uh, this future Emily's life and what has happened to it. It's large, uh, and so what Don Herzfeld did is he took the, uh, I guess you could call them uh, incessant ramblings of his niece uh, and recorded them, and uses them as the dialogue for the Emily Prime character, who is, I think, five or six in the movie, maybe four, five or six in the movie, and then had um, Winona May, Uh, I I don't know, I think she's just an, an I don't know, I don't know if she's an animator or related to Don Hertzfeld in uh, some way, but she voices an older version of Emily, and has her interact with the things that, his niece says, uh, to give things a sense of story and a sense of plot and a sense of structure. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that there are at least a dozen ideas presented in the first World of Tomorrow that could become their own feature-length film, as far as like sci-fi ideas, which is astounding. And not only that, but the film manages not to feel like, crowded, it doesn't feel like a clip show, it doesn't seem rushed or uh, expedient in any kind of way. It takes its time and develops this character, because they're kind of the same person, and it will pretty much blow your mind. It blew mine, anyway. I love the movie, it ended up, well, I mean, if you listen to the 2015 Circle of Film Award episode... Uh, Then you know that it was nominated for three awards, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Special Effects. Uh, So I quite enjoyed it. It was my third best film of the year that year. Uh, So this movie didn't, so World of Tomorrow Episode 2, I wasn't expecting. I thought it was going to be World of Tomorrow and then Hertzfeld would kind of move on to something different. But no, he created a sequel, which I'm totally okay with, having seen it now. And it is a continuation of the first story. We follow Emily Prime once again, with more uh, dialogue provided by Don Hertzfeld's niece. And this time, the premise is that a uh, a future clone, a future, quote, backup clone of Emily that was incomplete in its um, mind transfer, and so it it doesn't quite have, it doesn't have all the memories, uh, or necessarily any of the memories that the original Emily has, uh, has traveled back in time in order to attain them, essentially, and kind of merge her mind with the original Emily's. And in doing so... Uh, completely against the without you know consent from Emily Prime the two of them end up inside the backup clone Emily's mind and what she has experienced up until this point point. and we travel inside that and we kind of get an insight into her mind and um, her thoughts and just like the original film it takes you on a journey that you probably aren't prepared for it strikes a, a great balance between presenting new ideas, as well as kind of uh, restructuring old ones. And if, you've, you know, if you follow me on Letterboxd, this is one of the longest reviews I've ever written. It, the first half is just a series of quotes from the movie. Uh, here's a couple that aren't spoilers uh, that, I, that I quite liked towards the top of the list are, that is a glimmer of hope. Put it back. The closer I look at things, the less I know. It is very important that you don't think of a baby dinosaur later. It, it's fantastic. the The movie, may, maybe those look, close quotes don't do it for you or, or spark your interest. But I mean, these movie, the two movies together are less than forty minutes. You should check them out because you know they're they're just phenomenal and. Uh, As such, I have, you know, just like its predecessor, World of Tomorrow episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts, also appears currently in the Circle of Film Awards. Um, It also has three nominations, but they're not for the same thing. Uh, It again makes it into screenplay, currently. It's also in special effects, but instead of best picture, like its predecessor, it currently has a spot in best scene. Uh, The scene in question is towards the end of the movie, Um, so I won't give away what exactly happens. But I really do encourage everyone to go listen and and watch and, and experience this short film, and pretty much anything that Don Hertzfeld touches, because he manages to accomplish so much in such a small amount of time, and you don't really you don't really it's the kind of thing where you'll think about it and you could probably pause this movie every 30 seconds and dwell on the last 30 seconds that you just watched and you know have some sort of revelation about your life and about life in general because that's how great the scope of this movie is and it's it's absolutely fascinating i think it's it's brilliant and Um, I don't know if we're going to get an episode 3. I've heard a rumor that he might be putting out another one uh, in, you know, a year or two. Uh, If that's the case, I look forward to it. If it's not, uh, I look forward to whatever else he's working on at the time. And I think that, uh, you know, this is... You know, again, like, I watched World Episode 2 twice in a row. The other... uh, Yes, uh, two days ago. Yeah, it was... um, or I guess three to get three days ago is the day of as of the release of this episode. So New Year's Eve, I watched this episode two twice because it's just that it's so engrossing, and for something so simple. And you know, when you see it, like it's not, um, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like looking at um, the world, the land of the dead in Coco, where there's like a thousand million things on the screen at once. It's very straightforward in that sense, but somehow you still go through that movie again and again and again and continue to pick up new and interesting ideas and thoughts and and, um, just, just, uh, I I don't know. It's, it's great. It's absolutely great. So this is also currently in my top 10. Uh, It, it. Will likely still be there the, when uh, 2017 is effectively over. Uh, but yeah, man, it this is uh, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. I, I highly recommend it. Whoo! All right, so two reviews down. Didn't take a lot of time. Uh, I apologize if you wanted more me to say more on either of those movies. I'd be happy to discuss them at greater length in a different medium but for now we are going to uh, move on from today's reviews and jump into the cine Realists fantasy movie league update we sink into our seats right as they dimmed out all the lights a technical would- Week 5 is in the books right now, and in a surprising conclusion, the one screen of Last Jedi, one screen of Greatest Showman, six screens of Best Performer, All the Money in the World, is not the perfect cineplex it was projected to be almost all weekend. Um, We thought, I think most of us thought, that it was going to be Jumanji that potentially took away... Uh, this this lineup for being bet the perfect cineplex if it outgrossed The Last Jedi, but when it didn't, things seemed to be pretty safe sailing. However, actuals came out on Tuesday night, and with the incredible, incredibly strong showing from Greatest Showman, showing Showman, and uh, the dip in All the Money in the World's actual. Uh, box office score, the Perfect Cineplex ultimately ended up being six screens of The Greatest Showman, two screens of All the Money in the World, and uh, that was not a very commonly played lineup. Very few people got a Perfect Cineplex there. However, 10 people in the Cinerealist League played the Star Wars Greatest Showman 6 All the Money in the World lineup, and uh, they still won the league. Nobody in our league had the perfect Cineplex, and that was the only lineup better than this one. So, missing out on that five million dollars hurts, but it wasn't ultimately, you know, it it didn't truly affect things as far as the uh, Cinerealist League really goes. Um, For anyone who didn't play those particular eight screens... They lost at least $20 million to the top 10 people who did. And uh, we are seeing a little bit of separation uh, between the top and middle of the pack here. But not enough to uh, really confirm or uh, deny anybody anything at this point. We're only five weeks in, still eight weeks to go, a lot of time. Uh, But we now have four people... At the top of our list, who have eclipsed ninety percent of a perfect season, uh, with Schaub at ninety five point one five percent, one of uh, the highest percentage we've seen uh, currently since I started tracking that statistic. Um, if he were to keep that up for the rest of the season, uh, I gotta believe he'd be like top ten in the le- in the whole site, I think, but. Uh, Tall order. Tall order. Um, so the ten people that had the best Cineplex in our league were Shawbin, Rybone, Ramon, Keel Music, Director's Cut, Perks Plex, Plexi, as well as Sven Cinema and The Flex and Starship Nine. Uh, so all those got all those people did great. And uh, really boosted their portfolio and their seasons. Everyone else uh, fell a little bit in the rankings and in uh, deficit to the leader. Jaban now sits with six hundred thirty-two million dollars through five weeks. Rybone hot on the heels with six twenty-two. Rahman at six hundred ten and Kiel Music at six hundred two. We got five six seven other people who are in the 500 to 580 million dollar range and everyone else is below 500 million dollars director's cut holds on to the best performer lead with 23 to shawman's 21 perksplex with 19 plexi with 18 and ribone with 17 to round out the top five there no perfect interplexes this week the second week of the season without one uh, compared to the fall season, where we had one, two, three, four, five, six weeks of the 13 week fall season where nobody in our league got a perfect Cineplex. Um, and uh, the week, the tiebreaker was won this week by Perksplex, currently ranked sixth. Uh, this is their first week one in this season. And uh, we yet to have a repeat winner uh, on a week by week basis this season. As Rybone, Director's Cut, Perks Plex, Plexi, and the Flex all hold one win apiece going into week six, so Shawbin <clears throat> comes away with yet another week in the lead, which is the landmark twentieth week uh, that he that he has been in the lead in for the realists Currently ranked fifty first overall, which is could you know ending at that would be a new record, but. As I keep saying, there's a long way to go, uh, but perhaps the most significant thing that has happened since last week's update is that the spreadsheet for the Fantasy Movie League, Cinerealist uh, League, is uh, now on Google Sheets, which means that I can share it with everyone else. So if you check out the Awards uh, 18, is, it, is that the topic? Um, Yeah, the awards 18 stats thread, uh, the top in the original post, I edited in the link to the Fantasy Movie League spreadsheet. You can go back, look at the fall 16 season, see how you stacked up. Um, Some formatting notes, uh, if it doesn't, I think it's relatively clear, but, you know, just for sake of efficiency. If the cell associated with a person's name for a week is highlighted in green, that means that that person won that week. Um, In the case where, you know, there's a tie, uh, that person had the better lock time. If the numbers in the cell associated with a person in a particular week are red, that indicates a perfect cineplex, and if the number in a cell associated with a person is underlined that means that that person has um, the lead, the overall lead at that week of the season. So, for example, if you look at this current season, in week one, the week was won by the flex. Green, he's underlined, he was the leader in week one. Nobody got a perfect Cineplex, nobody's in red. Week two, directors and Plexi, both got a perfect Cineplex. Plexi's in green because he had the better lock time. But both Cineplexes are underlined because they both tied in week 1 and 2, and therefore were co-leaders in week 2. Moving on to week 3, Directors Cut, another perfect Cineplex, along with Perks, Plex, Ribone, and Shawbin. Directors Cut won the tiebreaker, and now holds sole uh, command of the lead, as Plexi did not have a perfect Cineplex in week 3. And so on, and so forth. Hmm. Uh, you can go back in each season and compare where everybody was ranked overall at the end of the, at the end, um, which is interesting in and of its own right. It's a sort of condensing of all that information down to one local area. Uh, there is the overall leaderboard and statistics and stuff like that. How many weeks won by each person? Uh, weeks one per season, perfect centiplexes, perfect centiplexes per season, best performers, best performers per season, total box office gross uh, since fall 16 season, average season gross since fall 16 season, um, and then a mildly arbitrary score statistic, uh, which is kind of like power ranking everybody against each other. So um, if you were to put stock into that number, uh, which you know, I don't, I don't suggest that it's not um, representative of how good a person is, because to some degree like it is, just uh, because that's how it works, but uh, here let me sort it a little bit and make sure I can explain it accurately. So the way the score value works is it takes the total it takes the number of weeks per season you average on you average, you win on average, sorry, number of weeks per season you win per a, on average, uh, with the number of perfect Cineplexes you get per season, adds those two together, then takes the best performers per season, and divides that average number by four and adds that to the other two numbers, and then adds whatever you got from all those to, the. Uh, number of weeks that you've been in the lead in the league overall divided by two currently. That's how we work. That's how it works currently. Definitely has room for improvement. It's a very rough, raw formula. But basically, what this is saying is um, weeks one per season, perfect center per season, best performance per season, and weeks in the lead are important. You know, obviously they are. And, uh, That yields some value, and the higher the value, the better you do in the game. So, for example, the number one person with that formula is Kill Music, who has won the season twice and is the only person to do so. Seems pretty straightforward to me. Number two is Plexi, who has won the season once. Uh, Number three is Chauvin, who has won the season once, and number four is Rybone, who's won the season once. And they're the top four, and they're the only people who've won this league. So it stands to reason that they would be the top. Uh, Looking at the next couple of people, we have Directors Cut and Rahman in 5th and 6th place, who are new entries into the league uh, starting in Fall 17, which is a pretty big deal. And they are uh, also, you know, they're a bit of a reach behind from the top four, but with an early strong showing, they... uh, they can totally break their way into this thing, uh, followed by perennial fifth place placer uh, Perksplex in seventh. Uh, Swagner, who finished in third in the first season of the Scenerealist Fantasy Movie League, uh, is in eighth. Followed by Xanadu and YoJRB rounds out the top ten. Um, looking at the values of these statistics that go into that number Uh, so weeks per season um, no one except Plexi averages winning more than two seasons two weeks per season uh, and almost averages three Uh, as far as PCs per season that honor goes to director's cut who in two seasons averages three and a half Uh, Rybone averages just under three and Plexi and Kill Music both average two and a third per season and then best performers per season Currently belongs to Puxy with twenty seven and a half. Uh, Q Music at twenty six one seven. Directors Cut at twenty six and a half in two seasons. Rybone twenty five and a third. Shawbin twenty four point one seven. Um, and then weeks in the lead is probably where a lot of the disparity comes into play because outside of the winners, nobody has more than four weeks in the lead. Um. So that is one of the statistics It might be weighted too heavily I could change it Um, I can change it right now If we make that worth a quarter Of what it's currently worth Then We lower that statistic And it moves Plexi into number one Which I don't think I like As much Because even though Plexi's me And I don't you know like i don't feel as though i don't know i don't know i'll have to, I'll have, to I'll have to look that look look that look into that a little bit more i don't know we'll see anyway moving on just to let you guys know there is a spreadsheet available online you can check it out and uh give feedback and let me know how you feel it is as as far as a, a tracking device i guess Uh, It will be updated regularly um, as soon as the uh, estimates become final, Monday or Tuesday night, uh, generally in time before uh, the picks are able to be made at 8 8 o'clock Eastern. But every once in a while it takes later into the night, especially if FML is a little bit late in finalizing values. Uh, But that's it. We're looking ahead to a new week with presumably Jumanji winning the weekend, which seems insane to me, but I think it's going to happen. We've got Insidious opening this weekend, we have Itanya finally expanding, and Molly's game also expanding wider, so those are the big ones to look for, and uh, good luck, everybody. Let's make some moves, see if we can avoid having every single person playing the same lineup again this week. (laughs) Good luck. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank you. I don't know. I guess I thank people so much. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the spreadsheet, about me, about the podcast, about anything else, your best place to go is circleoffilm.com. It has a lot of information there. If you want to get in touch with me, you want to contact me, uh, you can do so through email. Uh, using circleoffilm at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at circleoffilm. And if you'd like to support the show in a monetary fashion, you can head over to patreon.com circleoffilm. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know she'll never leave me even as she says